0: your life
1: yeah day mate 40 here we're back with with duvid uh duvid fun fun show last night and any reflections on uh last night's conversation yeah i
0: didn't realize uh you know god forbid we were going to be talking about sex and uh you know because you asked me to come up with that list of uh yeah you know just kind of insights into my life things that uh i didn't expect to be or uh, life shattering, changing. And, you know, certainly one of the biggest uh, things of Orthodox Jews was the size of their families. Like I, I remember, uh, you know, a lawyer my mom worked with uh, was Orthodox Jew and a, and a rabbi. And, and he had, he has nine kids. You know, like, I remember in high school, like my mom telling me, he's like, he's an Orthodox Jew and he's got nine kids. So like, you know, God forbid, I don't know about the sex, but uh, the big families.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you were telling me via Twitter DM about when you went to private school at age 15 and you you got some insights into life from that experience. Would you like to share a little bit more?
0: Yeah, I mean, biographically, um, my school in my area, you know, started uh, becoming majority African-American. The high school and you know like I, I was getting beat up and bullied and they got rid of ap classes i wasn't excelling and i ended up switching to private school and i, I went to you know kind of an elite private school and uh you know it just gave me a new uh a new insight and uh you know, your view and i you know i mentioned like as a realization that you know kind of like the elite are not necessarily all that special. Like, I mean, certainly, okay, people were more, uh, you know, wealthy or had more prominent positions, you know, maybe worked harder or more serious, but, uh, you know, to some extent, like, you know, when I got to the school with the uh, children of the elite, I had to say I was kind of unimpressed.
1: And why Why is that?
0: I'm not sure. You know, may, maybe just, you know, people are people. You're expecting more and uh you're know, saying that uh your know, people are just people, and uh you know, so i'm not, I'm not exactly sure because, you know I, I was fourteen, and uh you know maybe I'd been expecting more and I got there and uh you know it's like uh um i I can't think of a a good way to express it, but but I say it wasn't as uh you know it was a realization that uh you know, the people that reach the highest ranks of society you know, are not necessarily. Indomitable, or or you know, have such uh, specialness to them.
1: And what type of school were you going to where you were getting beat up? Obviously, as a public school. Was this in Michigan?
0: In Michigan, a suburb. You know, by the time I got, I was, you know, high school, it was a uh, well over fifty percent African American, um, and then Chaldean, which you in know, Michigan are uh, the Iraqi. Christians, and and then whites. It was probably like half divided between Jews and non non uh, Jewish whites. You know, so that there was already like less than twenty percent. So you know, they it was uh you know, but the neighborhood definitely switched when we moved into the neighborhood. It was you know probably over ninety percent white and you know a good chunk of Jews among those whites, and most of the whites left. Uh, Some of the Jews left. Uh, but you know now at this point, uh, you almost all the Jews go to private school. Almost no Jews go to public school anymore.
1: And uh, this is this is in the suburbs outside of Detroit. We're talking about.
0: Yes, yeah, Southfield is the uh, you know the the neighborhood. You know, Oak Park and Southfield are the dominant uh, Jewish neighborhoods. There's others further out into the suburbs. But uh, you know, at one point it would have been. Um, yeah i don't know if there's a comparable in la you know the patterns of uh you know the 67 riots uh, revolution in detroit jews moved out into the suburbs and uh you know continual pattern of basically some new developments you know jews moving in uh then blacks moving in and then uh, the whites moving away and you know some of the jews move further out but you know to a certain extent Uh, you know, the Jews can only do the white flight so much. So at this point, uh, you know, the Jews are basically completely engulfed in an African-American neighborhood.
1: And so what was your experience going to an increasingly African-American school?
0: Um, There was a reasonable amount of violence. Like, I mean, it's still an upper middle class neighborhood, but, a reasonable amount of violence, uh, you know, like regularly, um, you know, like I didn't necessarily get beat up or bullied too bad, but, you know, like getting hit, getting pushed, uh, getting bullied was pretty regular as opposed to when I switched to the private school. Um, I don't think there was a single fight. Like I didn't, there was, there was basically never fights. Um, but, uh, you know, like in, in the public school, uh almost daily, like you know I just get like hit on the shoulder, hit in the back, uh and there would be a fights, some of them pretty seriously like I, I was reasonably good at avoiding violence, and you know so just uh you know someone like you know hits me in the back or hits me in the shoulder, just keep on walking, you know, don't even look to see who did it uh you know but uh, there would be uh you reasonably serious fights uh, with people even being taken away to the hospital, police coming uh you know weekly.
1: And how did you, did you stay out of uh, serious trouble? I mean, did you get injured?
0: Um, I was injured once. Like, I had my wrist broken. Like, I was tripped, and I, I fell and broke my wrist. So, like, it wasn't, like, I didn't purposely break my wrist, but he tripped me and uh, you know, broke my wrist. Um, And also, academically, you know, like, uh, they cut the higher programs. I, I wasn't excelling academically. You was know, so like I was probably smart. I was, a, you know, a champion chess player, but uh, I wasn't even in the high classes. And uh, it was actually the debate coach. I got on the debate team. I did pretty good in debate. And the debate coach recommended me going to this, uh, you know, school for the gifted, for high IQ people. Um, but I didn't have any exceptional uh, accomplishments in school uh, till that point, besides for chess playing and on the debate team.
1: So do you think the educational experience was was benefited by the increasing numbers of African Americans entering your your former public school, or was it hurt by that?
0: Well, I mean they canceled the a p programs they'd funding um you know, so I had behavioral problems I was a difficult kid, so they might have had certain like special programs. But because I had behavioral programs, I never made it into, uh, you know, the the higher uh, educational tract level. And uh, I mean, there there are some African Americans that took their education very seriously. You know, it was somewhat upper middle class neighborhood. Uh, but but uh, no, generally, uh, it wasn't uh, that great for education. The educational quality declined, and also the Chaldeans. Um, Mostly dominate what they call party stores, which are kind of like liquor stores or, or you know, stores that, they call them party stores, but like, a, a, you know, that just have uh, deli food items, uh, party supplies, so you know, a lot of times alcohol. And although, I mean, some of them were academic, but the vast majority of them were going to work in their family businesses. And a lot of them even dropped out of school when they were legally allowed to at 16 and didn't take their uh, you know, education that seriously. So there was a extreme decline in education in my area. You know, you could connect it to a uh, possibly white flight that, you know, there could be other causes, but uh, you know, from alt-right perspective, uh, you, you know, probably would most likely be connected to the demographic changes.
1: I'm looking at my YouTube uh, studio right now. It says, ensure your content follows our elections misinformation policies to avoid interruptions for your audience. Uh, What do you think about YouTube giving this kind of notification to streamers?
0: Um, Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. You know, I think censorship is going to keep on increasing. You know, Charles Moskowitz, I stopped even sharing because you know, like he just harps on it, and he got uh, deplatformed, and uh, you know he maybe even went more since he got deplatformed into focusing on uh, election trutherism. But yeah, likely going into elections, they will increase uh, the censorship.
1: Yeah. So my my friends on the right in, in this dissident corner of the internet, uh, many of them believe the 2020 election was stolen. Uh, many of them believe that COVID's just a cold. Many of them are anti-vaccine. And so I don't agree with them on any of these things. I, I don't agree with their perception of reality. I, I don't agree with the, the wisdom of their comments, but I like them. Like I like their kind of American uh, disdain for experts and, and for authority, their, their willingness to to rock the boat. And so I think underneath... What, what I believe are generally crazy and ill informed and error ridden and unwise positions. I like what's underneath, like, I like the ethos. So, I, I'm wondering do you, do you have any thoughts on this particular dynamic that I experience where I disagree with so many of my friends in the distant right about electoral fraud and about COVID? Uh, and I don't think they've got their facts right. I don't think they've got their logic right. I don't think they're wise. I don't think what they're saying is true and good. But underneath that, I like them. I just like their their orneriness, their, their attitude towards expertise and authority, even though I disagree with how it's being expressed. Do you have any thoughts on this dilemma?
0: Yeah, my kind of... You know to some extent, I' like all people like you know yesterday we were talking about degeneracy and you know transsexuals and uh you know I'm not much into politics like politics is just a step over sports it's a little bit more intellectual, so I don't have a preference and and like obviously you know, like I'm a jew, I'm in a blue area, so uh there's very few people you know on the you know, only on the internet, you know maybe some orthodox Jews that would uh be in the right-wing camp, so it's more leftist, Democrats, uh, liberals, sh- social activists that I would say that where, where I disagree with their politics because I'm conservative-leaning, but I still kind of like them.
1: And uh, once you got to... Wait, you, you talked about you're a difficult kid in, in high school, even even before you got to private school. So how did your difficulty express itself? Um...
0: I, mean, I guess I was just troubled, you know. Like, I man, I, I, I got in fights. Um, I, mean, I guess I, you know, I used to steal. I wasn't like a, a huge thief, but uh I used to tease people. Um, I used to be kind of like a, a troublemaker. Um, I, mean, I wasn't a horrible kid, but uh, you, you know, like, uh, I got in, you know, relatively trouble. I was always skeptical of authority. I didn't like following rules. I didn't like uh, you know following conventions. So I, I was never, uh, you know, I was never a teacher's pet. I was never you know one that the authorities uh, you know, liked or thought that was going to do well. And uh, I was frequently in trouble. You know, I mean, it could be relative to things that were out of my you know control. You know, same being uh, you know like a like a Jew half Jew in a majority black Arab school, uh, you, you know, intellectually, but, uh, you know, like I, w- I was relatively frequently in trouble up to the age, about 14. After I switched to private school, I almost never got into trouble again. You know, I, I largely turned around and, uh, you know, d- hardly did anything that was, uh, too inappropriate, you know, I mean, even in New York, uh, you know, where I I was involved in like cocaine and various things, but, uh, you know, generally I was pretty well behaved since I turned about 14.
1: And uh, so when you went to private school, did that mean religious Jewish school in New York?
0: No, this was the secular humanist school in Metro Detroit where you had, you were supposed to have 130 IQ to get in.
1: Okay, so tell me about the the program there.
0: Um, it was quite a few, you know, it's probably 20, 30% Jewish. It was founded by um, a Holocaust survivor who married a German man, student of uh, Freud, and set up a, you know, like a Frankfurt-style humanist school with the goal of uh, educating kids so that they would... Uh, You'll prevent the next Holocaust from happening, stand up for social justice. Uh, you know, we call teachers by the first name, kinda let let uh, kids work at our own pace. I mean, it wasn't like a Mont- Montessori school, but uh, it, it was pretty liberal. Uh you know, it was ex- it was extremely liberal and uh you know, saying specifically teachers were called by the first name. There was almost uh you know, no discipline you know like if you weren't feeling well you were you were allowed to uh you know just kind of like walk out of class and uh um but it, it was also somewhat somewhat uh, you know, like a prep school academically demanding where uh you know almost all the kids went on to university and uh you know good universities from there uh, I applied to MIT and Harvard didn't get in uh, but I got into University of Michigan no problem uh you know I got good grades I took uh many AP advanced placement classes, uh, you know, learned computer programming and uh you know, but was indoctrinated with kind of like Frankfurt school uh liberalism.
1: Okay, uh Rodney Martin is back. Uh Rodney, any reflections on the show last night? Any any points that you never got to make and uh would like to elaborate upon now?
2: No, you know, I. I it ha- is my sound okay,
1: Luke? Yes, you sound fine.
2: Yeah, great. Uh, you know, uh, somebody characterized it in the chat as, as dad talk. And like I said, I, uh, I don't uh, give dad talk to anybody else's kids but my own. But, you know, uh, look, uh, if, uh, you know, there's just two points I make off of that is if you're having problems, look in the mirror first. And then two, be very, you know, I kind of probably left something off uh cuz my wife was actually watching that stream. Oh. And she reminded me <laughs> that it's a disaster. <laughs> it's a disaster uh, uh if you hook up with somebody, you know, try to pick a spouse and try to, you know, uh it sounds uh, rather graphic a hammer a square peg in a round hole uh when you have two people that have completely different belief systems Completely different uh, uh, views on society and uh, and even now politics. I guess we'd include it for politics. And you know how many times have we seen you know guys come on the show and for the purposes of this show or some other stream, uh, they're alpha trad male, but that's not what they picked in terms of a spouse or who they're presently with or, or married to. I mean, I'm not seeing some of the so-called tradiest trads. Uh, males that are actually married in, and hooked up with flaming feminists, and I always underst- could understand why come on the show and complain about it, or why come on and preach something different when that's not ultimately what you picked in the most important decision in your life, which is, you know, a spouse, a significant other, and the mother of your children.
1: And uh, what kind of relationship did you have with your own father, Rodney?
2: Very good uh very good uh i've never had now i I told you before luke i was raised by grandparents uh because my uh, i'm i'm actually legitimately a 60s flower child i was conceived in the summer of 69 as a matter of fact uh you know it's it's kind of a one of my uh, daughters who's a, a fan of film history mentioned that uh sharon tate's son who was murdered with her and up on uh, uh, cielo drive uh, and i would have been born the exact same uh, you know sharon tate's son would be the exact same age as i had had he been born uh so i kind of we had these uh uh you know uh, young uh, teen parents and they did the right thing and allowed my grandparents to raise me i later had very good relationships with both you know both my grandparents you know, for all intent and purposes were my parents and then my, you know, my, uh, my parents. In fact, I took care of a great many of their uh, snafus because responsibility seemed to have uh, gone lost on them and they were always behind the eight ball and something. So I spent, uh, you know, I always had somebody in my office uh, tending to their woes, uh, both legally and financially.
1: Well, speaking of dad talk, I mean, I think that's something that tens of millions of Americans need. I mean, I, I know that uh, I, I've, I've always resonated with father figures because I didn't have a particularly strong or close relationship with my own father. So I, I feel like uh, dad talk is, is a valuable, valuable service.
2: Well, I don't think that we hear enough of it because nowadays, if you actually talk real dad talk the way that my Dad, grandpa, talk to me, uh, you're considered what? A misogynist, a bigot, every other type of name. I mean, let's face it, dads uh, are not uh, it's in uh, popular demand. A welfare check has replaced the dad. And, you know, used to be single motherhood was something that even the single mothers went to great lengths to try to cover up and hide. And now, it's heralded as, you know, literally right up there, the top three with the, you know, with, with the trans and everything else. Uh, you know, probably the only white woman that's ever going to get any honors in today's society is a single mother.
1: And uh, Duvid, ha- has father hunger played a significant role in your life? Is that one of the things that attracted you to Orthodox Judaism, meeting the that hunger for fathers?
0: Um. Well, maybe like, you know, rabbi's strong uh, rabbinic uh, leadership and then, uh, you know, the strict orthodox opinion when I got to Israel that that considered me an orphan, even though I have a father. And, uh, you know, I had decent, you know, I I had troubled relations with my father. I was a difficult kid to raise, but, uh, you know, relatively I had a decent relation with my father, still did. Um, I don't think he really ever really understood the the jewish level or uh you know to kind of a dissonance to it and you because know, my mom was substantially more financially successful than my father even though my father's relatively accomplished um and he might attribute that to her jewishness it probably is somewhat attributable to her uh, jewishness or financial success uh but uh, you know it created a unique situation because uh My mother was uh, relatively uh, quite successful.
1: And uh, Rodney, did did Father Hunger play a significant role in your life?
2: Define Father Hunger. Tell me what that what you mean. Okay. Well,
1: for me, I was often, I was usually more interested in talking to my friends' fathers than in talking to my friends. Like, I really enjoyed hanging out with my teachers after school. I would would often hang out with my friends' fathers and talk about books I was reading. So many of my interests I couldn't really talk about so much with kids my own age. So I really enjoyed having having mentors. So when, it, when I started working, I enjoyed having uh, bosses who I was able to look up to. So father hunger has been a significant role in my life, but I had enough of a relationship with my own father that I wasn't so hungry that I went gay about it. Like I never eroticized male attention. So I know for pretty much every gay that I I know that they didn't have a good relationship with their father. And so they came to eroticize male attention. So I didn't have that, that degree of intensity. But uh, how about you? Did you find yourself eroticizing male attention?
2: No, uh, keep in mind, I was raised by grandparents. So there was a significant generational difference between my friends' parents, than in mine, uh, you know, my uh, you know, my uh, uh, grandparents you know, raised me as their own. You know, came out of that what what you what we refer to as the greatest generation, which I, I actually have a problem using that term with that generation. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, my uh, my grandfather was born in 1925. And my actual father was born in nineteen fifty three so you see the generational and all my friends uh parents were about the same you know age and generation of my biological parents and The one thing that my grandparents instilled in, in me uh uh in my brother was a strong sense of individuality and self reliance uh they weren't one i mean they they you know <laughs> They would just be absolutely abhorrent uh, at today's child rearing, where you have to have safe spaces and you tell the teacher, you know, my my grandfather's rule was someone's bullying you. Uh, You punch them in the face and you fight back. Even if you lose, you're gonna gain some measure of respect and probably end the bullying. Um, And then there was also a very strong work ethic. You're expected to work and earn your keep, pay your bills on time do what's right. You know, The you know there was a rabbi at Cedar Sinai that told me, do unto others uh, and uh, everything else, you know, as they, do unto others as you've had them do unto you, then everything else is superfluous. That's exactly what a rabbi described the Torah to me as. Now, you can disagree with it or not, but it sure, it does seem logical. And actually, there's a lot of parallels because that's almost identical to what my um, uh, grandparents taught me. So I, I really... You know, if I needed something, I needed help, I'd always, I, I, that was always there uh, in terms of, you know, asking, you know, having a problem with an issue and it had to be something very serious or, uh, but I never, I was never uh, uh, yearning, you know, for parental attention. When I got it, it was great. If I didn't get it, I didn't care uh, very much uh, uh, either. And uh, overall, it was a, it was a very healthy and, and, and loving family. But it wasn't a needy family, if you know what I'm saying, by the term needy. Um, we knew we had each other's back in that household. And uh, uh, we knew that if one of us did the wrong thing, particularly my brother or I, uh, we actually would be in fear of the repercussions from family than any sort of authorities. And, uh, you know, I, that philosophy to some degree, as well as the input for, you know, in, in the uh, 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 my wife's involvement, it's worked very well with my kids as well. I said yesterday, none of my daughters have turned up, knocked up. My sons, there's almost no women have showed up at our house saying that my sons have knocked them up. I have you know, one ch- uh, older son that's uh, married and has th- going to have three kids and another one that's getting married. And we've never had any uh, issues that, you know, you know, children of my uh, of my friends who are now my age and I still keep in touch, Uh, They've gone just absolutely batshit crazy on some issues with their kids. But then again, it was also a different school and education system. I think the education system, the media today, and in the society today also plays uh, a major role. Uh, Media and the outside influences wasn't something that weighed very big in my upbringing. We were taught to very much uh, be our own person. Uh, You can question things, but do the right thing. And literally, not uh, shall we say, not go with the flow. I think the single worst thing that would offend my grandfather was uh, just going with the flow. Uh, I, I attribute that to everybody putting Ukrainian flags up because that's the new thing.
1: And uh, David, what, what kind of who have been your most important mentors?
0: I had a lot of mentors, but uh, you know, certainly rabbis. You know, I had strong rabbinic figures, uh, you know, some distant, you know, like I studied under older rabbis that were, uh, you know, I didn't have a close personal relationship. But then there were certain uh, rabbis I had uh, closer relationships with. And then, you know, in Israel, I had, uh, I mean, in New York, I had people that were maybe just slightly older than me, mentors, you know, like when I day traded. Uh, you know, like my boss that I worked for, who was just a few years older than me. Um, You know, Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, it's easy to have a mentorship relationship. So I had hundreds probably of Orthodox Jews that uh, uh, mentored me in various ways. And then, you know, larger rabbis that I you made, you know, so to say my rabbi. My my father was a major influence. you know, i even even still till today and you know, all sorts of uh I like learning things. So I'm I i do not really fall in line and like doing things my own way, but I'm constantly learning new things. And I'll uh you know, mentor under uh and you know really anybody who uh, knows something willing to teach me. Even uh, like Hinduism, you know, like I found people that knew the Hinduism and studied under them, uh worked for them, uh you know, business fields, construction. You know, even Luke, you know, like live streaming. Consider you know, Luke my mentor in streaming, like that. You know, like uh, I was interested in streaming, so I make uh, you'll know, Luke my streaming mentor. And
1: one one challenge that that I've had with developing mentors in in Judaism, particularly Orthodox Judaism, is that there's always reciprocation that's required. Like you throw in with with a rabbi in a particular community, you have to walk the walk. And oh yeah, yeah. So so, Duvid, did you did you have did you have troubles with the responsibilities and requirements of taking on a mentor in Orthodox Judaism? Because it it's virtually never it's it's never unconditional love, right? If you develop a mentor in Orthodox Judaism, you're expected to walk the Derek to walk the path that that they are walking.
0: Well, we we discussed this guy was a half Jew and i served rabbis in uh, on traditional roles where uh you know like i was their driver i uh you know, was like a god buying synagogue and uh you know, did uh administerial roles and you know so I, I i had twofold like i there were rabbis that i served and because i was kind of an outsider uh because i served the rabbis they kind of let me in let me be part of the congregation and taught me Torah. You know, it's kinda of like, oh, you're a half Jew, you're a Bald shuva, Um, you know, typically they wouldn't let me in. Um, but uh, you know, because I served the rabbi, uh, they would let me in, and I ser- you know, said so I served the rabbi in ways like, you know, menial. Um, but I-, I meant more Orthodox Jews like all sorts of things, you know, like uh mostly professional. I did like hundreds of uh different jobs. I mentioned uh, you know Bertrand. He wasn't a rabbi, he was a landlord, a businessman, um, and then like day trading. But uh there were all sorts of Orthodox Jews that uh you know, kind of make you their schlepper And uh and it's Orthodox Judaism has kind of like a you know pretty hierarchical culture. So uh you know when I was first in Berkeley, was like go, oh, you're Bertrand's guy. And so like I would publicly sing his praises and be like, Oh, he's such a great guy, and you know, like Rabbi Balcony. Um, you know, various people, and I did things for them, and I would, uh, you know, publicly sing their praises, and uh, I'm not sure if you found that in the Orthodox community, so I'm not just referring to rabbis, and maybe you find that also, like, okay, if you're, you know, because you have an, your convert or have an unconventional relationship, and you serve them, and, uh, uh, but, but, you know, maybe in Hollywood writing or other things where you just have someone that uh, mentors you, and you do kind of like menial tasks for them. You'll uh, drive them, you'll pick them up food, you'll, uh, you know, clean, you know, take out their garbage or, or whatever. And they'll teach you things, you know, they'll, they'll cut you in on things. If it's party promoting, if it's, uh, how to trade stocks, if it's, uh, you know, like all, all types of interesting things I learned how to do.
1: And, uh, Rodney, have you had important mentors?
2: You know, here's the funny thing about a mentor. You get into this where you have a recognized situation where this is my mentor. Uh, you, you develop a, 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 almost a complex for not wanting to disappoint them. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, uh, that's I think that's one risk. Of course, it's with any type of relationship. There's going to be some sort of risk. And, you know, being able to risk is something that I think separates, you know, uh, the wheat from the chafe. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've I've had several. I you know I've had uh, business mentors, I've had legal uh, mentors. Uh, you know, uh, it just depends. Uh, you know, in, in boxing, my coach, you know, it, it was a huge, huge mentor. Uh, you know, he died a few years ago, very elderly, and it broke my heart. Uh, it just, uh, it just did. It, you know, people that leave a lasting in, uh, uh, imprint on you, I think those are mentors, whether you want to admit it or not.
0: You have an add on that when you produce results, you kind of know it, so you know if it's uh, business people uh or or any field you know like you're boxing or you know when when you're when you're succeeding you're making your mentor proud uh you know if it's business you're making the money like I day traded, I started making money or construction, you know closing deals uh you know, th- you know people start making money, people start seeing results. Uh, party promoting, things are going successful. So in that sense, um, it's relatively obvious when you're producing results, and it's worthwhile for your mentor. And even some cases, like the mentor didn't really want me, you know, didn't really want to mentor me. And it was completely contingent upon me producing results.
1: And uh, Rodney, what about the price of being mentored? Did that ever become too stiff?
2: Um, I think uh, probably from my standpoint, it may have a couple of times, but I don't think it was ever you know any fault or any issue with with the mentor because sometimes we as human beings have a problem with expectations, uh, which is something I think you know as part of developing discipline, uh, you have to really watch you know expectations, and uh, so uh, you know probably so in a, in, a, in a in a couple of occasions.
1: And, no, uh, Ricardo, I'm not dead. Uh, Rodney, have, have you come to any painful or disturbing or, or sharp realizations as you had to battle various health uh, challenges over the past uh, few years?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, it makes you separate what's truly important uh, versus what is not Um uh, all of the trappings of career and finance and and money which i've spent a great deal of my professional life pursuing and getting all with the and from my point of view it was to make sure that my family was provided for uh but uh no i'm not on dialysis yet uh not yet but uh, uh it makes you it makes you understand that uh, the thing that really counts is, is time and time with those who are most important and that's free now yes having to achieve you know, uh, you know financial uh, security you know for me and for my family and beyond them that's a nice thought but uh, you come to realize that if you raise your children uh, correctly in a two-parent household and you have the right partner you have the right spouse There's a 99, I say, Luke, that's me, a 99% chance uh, that your kids are going to be okay, whether you leave them a million dollars or you leave them zero. It's the time that I think, and I've learned that uh, 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 probably the hard way because there was a period of about 20 years where I was either off overseas or out doing business or whatever, and my wife was left bearing the brunt of raising the family until I semi-retired a few years ago.
1: Also, so you try to make up.
2: You try to make up for all of this while you have some mobility left in between dialysis and other things.
0: Yeah, God forbid. I hope you feel better. What about you, Luke? I mean, when I said uh, I felt pretty confident in most of my years, you know, from Israel to New York till today, that I produced results for a lot of the people that I was under, even for you. You know, something like relatively, Luke Ford yes. helped me out. And I produced results, and I, you know, tried to return the favor in the sense where, you know, like, you could say, like, it worked out for you. Um, yes. To, and, uh, you know, I felt I've I've always been a good worker like that and produced uh, the results. And even when I was doing menial things, if it was just a driver or taking care of the synagogue, I was reliable. I knew exactly what they wanted for me and, uh, you know, punctual and got that done. You know, no complaints, and uh, you know. So, I, I think that's been probably my biggest benefit is uh, you know being reliable, doing what was wanted from me, and uh, producing results for the people that helped me.
1: Uh, Rodney, I think you'd also develop a a particularly keen appreciation for excellence. So, normally, the quality of your doctor doesn't really matter that much because for for most people. Uh, medicine doesn't really add anything significant to their life. For most people, any medical issues you have either cure themselves or they can't be cured. Uh, but I, I expect that you've perhaps developed a keener appreciation for the, the benefits of excellence.
2: Well, you know, that was the uh, 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 Greek's uh definition on paraphrasing of happiness is full use of one's ability along the lines of excellence that was literally uh, the greek definition of uh, of happiness i do uh, believe it or not now i'm going to differ with you a little bit i do think doctors do matter i will take my cedars doctors any day over the va doctors which are is basically public health care and definitely over a 65 IQ Somali doctor in Mogadishu any day of the week. I'll take Cedars doctors and UCLA. I, I go between both uh, Cedars and UCLA. But in terms of medical care, when you're fighting things as you get older and your uh, your mortality begins to weigh on you, I think mental, uh, It's a lot of it has to do with mental and spirituality. Uh, I'm convinced that it doesn't matter how hard I fight something, God's will will be done. You know, I look at Steve Jobs, who just, you know, him and, you know, Patrick Swayze is another one. You look at how they went down. Uh, uh, Michael Landon's another one. You'll get can- pancreatic cancers. Uh, they uh, they literally flipped their wig uh, and, uh, you know, they did things that were just absolutely ghastly. Uh, and I think probably out of denial and out of fear, uh, I take the opposite approach. I will pursue the excellence in medicine. I'll do what I what I can. But ultimately... Uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I certainly uh, am further down the totem pole and uh, uh, pecking order uh, from the Almighty. What God's will be done, what God's will be done, and I think how you handle something and how you approach it uh, is equally uh, uh, as important. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a mixed bag on that issue.
1: Has has but excellence you know- is important. Has illness affected your relationship with, with God? Has it made God closer or farther away?
2: Um, there's two answers to that. Uh, one, uh, like I said, I, I was raised in a spiritual family, uh, a Catholic uh, uh, family, uh, even though they weren't all Catholics uh, at all. there was There was kind of a religious divide in the family because of my biological parents, teenagers in the, You know in 1969 getting together and having a kid from two different worlds so the catholic just happened to win out but uh and no guys i don't need a kidney and i'm not sure i would take yours but uh anyway um what uh so it was always a sense that i went to private you know catholic schools Uh, you know i didn't go to public schools except for i think maybe two years my whole life kindergarten part of first grade before my grandmother insisted that i go to you know religious school and uh I've done the same thing, a combination of, of religious school and homeschooling for all of my kids, they turned out very, very well. But uh I I cannot say that I was overly pious. Obviously I wasn't. I engaged in hard alcohol, as you know, Luke, and other things. Uh did things uh overseas where it would be out of sight, out of mind, that probably I'm definitely not proud of, that I still have to be called account to, to. But uh what the single thing that brought me back to god was the death of my daughter in uh, in 2017 uh when you have a child that dies in your arms take you're, you're there when they t- when they take their first breath as a parent you're not supposed to be there when they take their uh uh last breath and so that brought me closer to god than anything and then the subsequent illnesses and things i uh, uh i think that's just solidified it so I must say that I've been far more spiritual uh, uh, and uh, far more religious since 2017 than I was the first 45 years of, of my life. You know, they see all oh, the whole story of the prodigal. Uh, I'd like to say probably I'm, I'm the prodigal. And uh, so uh, um, that's where I stay. that's, that's that accounts for my spiritual evol- evolution and I must say, uh with all the harm and the hurt, the medical stuff, believe it or not, Luke doesn't bother me as much as it bothers my family. I go to doctor appointments, I go to treatment, I went and had some something cut on uh a week ago uh you know that's just things you do um I try to not you know pine you know pine away or worry about as much as everybody else uh but uh uh you know the uh uh because I in my mind what's going to happen is going to happen and I know you know uh, I have a fairly I, I think I've atoned for almost all of my bad uh, bad things and so uh I'm looking forward to you know what comes next and I told my uh, family as almost all of my kids now are adults you know it, when the time comes and I'm gone don't have any sort of crying you know thing I pre- I prefer an Irish wake if anything you know have have fun throw a party celebrate you know uh, celebrate things but uh not that I'm making any plans
1: what do you what do you want on your tombstone, Rodney?
2: um I you know I wouldn't even care if I had one or not, and uh believe it or not the the way I have my final arrangement set up, there won't be a tombstone. I'm not going to take a dirt bath, Luke. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory, and part of my ashes are going to be entombed with my daughter, and the rest are going to be taken to a special place known only to my wife and I, where she says she'll join me later unless she goes first.
1: And, and, uh, David, what would you like on your tombstone?
0: I'd still like to make it back to Israel. You know, like I, I'd like to have, uh, probably just, uh, you know, I, I, I'd still like to find, uh, A wife and have kids and and so that's probably it you know just be born uh you may be son of and my children uh and uh you know maybe somehow to uh you know still make it israel
2: you know luke i can tell you what i put on my daughter's headstone yes Uh, i put uh, her name uh rendering of an angel and 2016 to forever And uh, so, if I were to have a tombstone, I wouldn't be mine just a term forever because there are a few people I'd like to haunt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what kind of patient are you? I mean, what do you like to deal with for the for the nurses, Rodney?
2: Well, uh, I try I try to do as much of my uh, procedures and stuff outpatient as I can argue with the doctor to do. For a whole lot of reasons. My oldest daughter is a nurse and she has told and she works in a hospital and she has said, Dad, you know, hospitals is where a lot of people go to die or they come out sicker uh, than they were when they went in. So try to limit your exposure there. So uh, uh, generally speaking, I go in and I try to I try to negotiate as best I can with doctors to get me in and out within two days. Now, that's not always been the case but I am one that I'm not a difficult person in terms of someone that is trying to help me. Uh, and uh, so uh, I tend to uh, you know, follow instructions and uh, not create any sort of a hassle. I think probably the biggest disagreement there's ever been has been uh, at prior hospitals or visitation policies, which my wife took great umbrage to, that's not the case at Cedars. Well, it was during COVID because nobody could go into any place during COVID. But as a general rule, Cedars will let the family members spend the night in the room. And uh, so I think visitation has been the biggest issue, not so much for me, but for members of my of my family.
1: And uh, David, when, when you go through tough times, difficult times, painful times, does that draw you closer or...? Take you farther away from God.
0: I think I really haven't uh, gone through that many uh, difficult times, and I'm—you'll know, think I'm pretty always close to God. Uh, you know, like I found God in my—you know—before I turned twenty, and and haven't lost God, and that's probably helped me avoid uh, difficult times.
1: And uh, Rodney, what what kind of role has has mother hunger played in your life? Have you yearned for a mother? Did you find a mother when you got married?
2: I found a mother for my children when I got married. Uh, Now, when I got married the first time, uh, it was kind of a shotgun type of situation, Luke, to be honest with you. And I was all for it, by the way, and so was she. It was raging hormones. We were 18 and absolutely foolish and too young. Uh, and too stupid, and not ready, but we were trying to make things right, and we wanted to make sure that a child wasn't born and declared illegitimate, even though by that time in, you know, late 1980s, it was kind of, that was, nobody cared anymore, but our families cared, Uh, but uh, the wife that I've been married to for the last 30 years, you know, I approached it completely different, and as did she, uh she wasn't looking for uh, uh another child to raise i wasn't looking for a mommy i was looking for a mother for children we were compatible in in terms of our outlook on life our values you know our goals roles things of that nature and uh so it just fit and what's funny is i really wasn't actively looking uh at that time and this is why I really I look back uh, and this is before a time when I was very very gotten closer to God uh he must have been watching out for me because that is probably uh, her and my children are the greatest blessings that's been bestowed on me, and uh, a lot of them happened prior to me actually be having a full appreciation of, uh, of God and what he does for us and when he's there now I will tell you during trying times I probably i I get very close and I would tell you. It was uh, God. It was God that saved, saved me after my uh, after my daughter passed away. I was not in the uh, uh, best shape. In fact, I was thinking about doing things that probably I'd never would have thought. Of, I never would have thought that I thought thought would have uh, considered doing at that period of time. And uh, it was almost as if uh, some some hand touched my hand, and I opened I uh, I opened the scriptures and started reading. And uh, I got a visit, believe it or not. I got a visit from two. I got a visit from a priest and I got a visit from a rabbi at Cedar sinai who had heard what had happened and the rest is history.
1: Hmm. And uh, David, what what kind of role has Mother Hunger played in your life, if any?
0: I always had pretty strong relations with my mother. So uh, never really, uh, I I guess, had... uh, mother hunger yeah i I probably never resolved my identity crisis and becoming a born-again jew and um it, it probably just never made sense to anybody so uh you know, like god forbid uh you know it's a shame but, you know I, I pray to uh find a wife and build up my own family but uh, I, I was able to uh maintain a good relationship with my mother throughout this
1: and uh, David, what what uh, realizations did you get about life when you moved to Israel at age um, I eighteen?
0: Mean, a lot about Judaism. I mean, some about the nature of the larger world. You know, maybe the, you know the coldness of uh, the realization of the Hol- Holocaust in World War Two. Um, just the sheer number. You know, just getting off Israel, seeing Israel, that there's such a thing—a Jewish state. And then seeing the you know, the masses, the hundreds of thousands of Hasidim and Haredim. And so I had a realization like this is what I am, this is what my ancestors were, seeing Hasidim because uh, you know in Metro Detroit there's some Chabad or Orthodox Jews, but uh you know, nothing comparable. And I had the realization that like this is what I am, this is what my ancestors were, and uh, you know, this is what I was going to uh become. And uh, you know, Israel's a much different place. Uh, you know, the militarism, uh, you know, you know, God forbid forbid if you say like the apartheid nature, the different uh, treatment of Palestinians, all all different type things. Uh you know, li- living in Israel was uh extremely different. But uh, you know, just recognizing that there is haredim that my ancestors were probably uh Haredi and that would probably uh you will know, be, uh, be the life path that I was going to choose.
1: And, uh, Wait, Rod- Luke, R- Rodney, go ahead. Can I ask, uh, the a question? Yeah. Duba? when you're in Israel, did you
2: feel at home? Did you feel home there?
0: Yeah, man, I I, went, I after, I mean, I, I chose to go to Israel after high school. And, you know, I, I was on a, I guess, Orse-Matic summer trip. And, you know, right when, uh, you know, I got there, like, I, I realized, like, the you know, like, so, like, I, I wasn't uh, a Zionist, but the Zionist dream hit me, like, uh, you know, because I had a strong Jewish identity, um, you know, I, I requested to be bar mitzvahed, I studied Judaism, took it seriously, um, even Orthodox Judaism, it, it looked into it on my own, and, uh, and then, you know, seeing the reality of Israel, seeing hundreds of thousands of uh, Haredim, um, you know, I just saw this was going to, uh, you know be my lot. Although, you know, I was kind of neutral on like political Zionism, but, you know, you know, from like the, you know, what would call the realization of the Zionist dream that, you know, that Israel exists, there's a Jewish state and, uh, you know, I'm going to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, if we get back when I came to, came back to New York, uh, you know, seeing how built up the Jewish community is in New York, uh, you know, saying that, that, uh, you know that there's just uh, you know over a million Jews, hundreds of thousands of uh, Hasidim in in New York like that, and you know maybe like L.A. just like uh, neighborhoods and neighborhoods of of, of millionaires, and uh, you know various things we could talk about that also.
1: Uh, Duva, did you have did you have a, an idealization of Israel that was removed by your experience of Israel? What were your expectations as opposed to the reality?
0: I didn't really have expect it. I wanted to know you know, like I want I went to Israel because I wanted to know Judaism was important to me I wanted to find out uh like I saw Orthodox Jews here in in uh your know, Detroit and I had a feel that the truth lied in Orthodox Judaism but in terms of Detroit like you know uh you know the community is kind of small and uh um yes you know, so I just wanted to know and when I got to Israel, I was willing to largely accept what I learned, you know, so I kind of went for the biggest rabbis I could find in the best schools. Um, you know, I was in Orsemaic originally, and I, I didn't really feel they were giving me, you know, Torah, true Judaism. So I sought out, uh, you know, Karetism. you know, I, I worked hard. I got into Mir Yeshiva. I, I found, uh, you know, the Tolstah from Mitzkak Rebbe. And, uh, and, you know, Kabbalists, and I, uh, did everything to, uh, study under them. And I was willing to, uh, remake myself, you know, like, cause I, I wanted to be a Jew. And when I got to Israel, I, I put upon myself, like, I'll do what's necessary to, uh, you know, be a, you know, so sort to of say, a real Jew. And, uh, you know, I'm still in identity crisis. Like, what does it mean, a real Jew? But for, you know, a good 10 years, I, I was, you know, felt like it was karate, and I was gonna do everything possible to uh you know be become karate.
1: And hey, uh, Luke, Go ahead, Rodney. Uh just a quick
2: question. It's a little off topic, but maybe That's fine. <laughs>
1: There's no topic. <laughs> um, you know, take
2: taking Ben Shapiro out of the equation, just consider him an outlier. For years, probably let's just say since the thirties, the Jews have, let's just say eighty twenty backed liberalism, and no matter what form liberalism, they backed liberalism during the civil rights era of the 1950s and 60s, and to a large degree, uh, they were on the mark uh, uh, there. Uh, but uh, even as it morphed into what we have now called wokeism, it's still, Jews still support 8020 that, and yet we're seeing as a result of those policies, a significant Rise in anti-Semitism by the people that the Jews championed for years and years and decades and decades. I'm wondering at what point does the Jewish community do a reassessment? And I've always said there's a difference between an Israeli. Israelis are totally different than American, uh, than American Jews. I uh, know because I have I talked to both. But you got to wonder: is there any sort of you know introspection going on and you know reassessment? Like, oh, oh. Uh, this didn't work out the way we thought it would work out.
1: Okay, I'm going to I'm going to jump in and answer that. Uh, number one, and perhaps most importantly, Jews have the same voting patterns as non-Jews with similar IQ levels and similar levels of education. So, uh, not, non-Jewish white people with similar levels of education to Jews have the same voting patterns. So, Anglicans, for example, they have the same average IQ as, as Jews, around 110. They have approximately the same levels of education, and they have the same voting patterns. Anglicans vote about 70-30 for the Democratic Party. Jews also vote about 70-30 for the the Democratic Party. Uh, Second, uh, Jews are pretty much in line with other uh, minorities in in their voting patterns. So uh, they're not terribly different from Asians. So Asians also vote for the Democratic Party. So it kind of makes sense that Jews would side with the coalition of the fringe versus the core. And so you've got a a white Christian core of the country and and Jews, Asians, Latinos, of course, blacks, uh, homosexuals have all tended to side with the coalition of the fringe. And the the problems that this has brought about for Jews are are there. But, But so would there be problems if, if Jews had say thrown it with the the white Christian majority, uh, that there would be downsides to that too. So I think that overall the the Jewish strategy, just in terms of you know the concrete interests of Jews, has been fairly effective. I mean Jews are about as safe in the United States of America today as they've ever been in history. So when a Jew gets attacked in in New York, like they they get punched. Like there's you know, media tension in the Jewish in the Jewish media than sometimes the secular media as well. So I that that's how I would begin to approach that issue. Also, it's changing younger Jews are not as liberal as older Jews. So Jews are the one group who get more liberal as they get older. So I'm not sure there's any other group of which that is true. Uh Duvid, any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with basically what Luke said, but uh, you think also Jews probably assess the causal structures of why things are happening differently. And one of the things I also mentioned you know, like, was the realization of strong Jewish sectarianism, that uh, Jews do not necessarily really like each other. And even in Israel, uh, the recognition that Orthodox Jews, Israelis don't necessarily like American Jews, Reform Jews secular jews and if it's like a group strategy um you know like duvid or luke people that upend our life and change our life are relatively rare you know like uh yeah i used to think like rodney like when are people going to wake up and become bali chuva and you know see the glories of uh, orthodox judaism Uh, but generally people double down in their strategies and uh you know like I would predict, God forbid, even if things do get worse, even, uh, you know, even if you study World War Two and the Holocaust, that uh, the majority of various Jews throughout the Holocaust um, didn't uh, change strategies, but continued to uh, double down in the strategies that, uh, for whatever reason, they thought were best.
2: Well, you know, I got two points on that, Luke. You mentioned Asians, and they were the second group I was going to mention. They have voted predominantly Democrat and liberal, and yet they are also like Jews. They have these memes out now, stop Asian hate. And if you look at who's hating on Asians and who's beating them up on the sidewalks, it is not white Christians by any means, and I won't go any further on that. But another example I like to use is during apartheid in South Africa, Israel never sanctioned or cut off trade with South Africa, but American Jews were wholeheartedly into sanctions and boycotts and things of that nature. So it's just kind of interesting. It was explained to me, uh, you know, one time that uh, by a Jew that look, there's only, at this time, I think there's only 11 million Jews. I think there's what 12 or 13 million now worldwide. He said, there's only 11 million of us worldwide. We're always in survival mode. We kind of got to tip our finger in the air and see which way the wind's blowing and keep our head down, and of course, Maybe it's worked. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe Jews are just greater at assessing the political wins than a lot of other people are.
1: And uh, I want to tell the story, Rodney, of how we met. And so I'm going to tell the story and then I'd love you to comment or or tell the story from your perspective. So in 2014, I participated in a program with Tom Sunik. He was visiting from Europe and he gave a talk and and then I, I gave a response and uh, there was a crowd of, I don't know, 40, 50 people who came to a Chabad synagogue to you know, take in this this dissident right conversation. And then uh, a day or two later, uh, Robert Stark brings, brings to my attention there's this guy, Rodney Martin, who's up in the arms that Tom Sunick spoke to Zionists. And Rodney Martin has an organization, and he has disinvited Tom Sunick from uh, speaking to his organization and Rodney Martin is just denouncing Tom Sunick in the most vitriolic of terms. And I'm like I'm taken aback. It it's like, whoa. I mean this this Rodney Martin guy is is vitriolic. And then and then Rob Stark says, Hey, I could probably arrange a, a debate with Rodney Martin on something like a Jews Good for Western civilization. And so once I start talking to Rodney, I, I find he's you know, perfectly amiable and, and uh, reasonable to, to talk to. And even though there are all sorts of technical issues on the debate, we, we still you know got to have it out a little bit. And we became friends uh, ever since. So that happened in 2014. What do you remember about those events, Rodney?
2: Well, a little back, a little back uh, story behind that. Sunik had told my cohort we were hosting an event that he wasn't going to do that and uh so uh uh wasn't going to speak there and I had some other issues uh with regard to why why he would go and do that given what was happening in 2014 at the time and actually I don't remember it as actually having it out um uh, I I think actually when push came to shove now Luke you'll probably say I agreed more with you and I'll probably say you agreed more. I think we kind of split down the middle you know, on, on that discussion, and it wasn't shortly long after that that the survival mode analogy uh, was made uh, was made to me, and it's it's kind of uh, understandable. Uh, I still get riled up as to why a community, a group, would advocate policies uh, that have been, I believe, harmful to the body politic and the social fabric of their host. And I'm not referring to them as hosts. They, you know, Jews still refer to them as a diaspora. Uh, but uh, uh, I, uh, but uh, why would they do that? And why would they uh, uh, make common ground with groups? They're worried about anti-Semitism. Uh, the Holocaust has nearly eclipsed the Torah as the actual religious text. But why would they make common ground with some of the groups that are the most anti-Semitic? You and I talked about this, Luke. We know Latins are some of the most anti Semitic groups, and that's done by the ADL's own surveys, and yet they're asking that the borders remain to be open and flooded in. Why are they? It's interesting. Why would you engage in a pattern of conduct that degrades the social fabric of your host society and then make common ground with people that, as soon as the the scale tips, and it's not much longer before the scale tips? the Jews Jewish is not going to be in any better condition, any better shape than the people who once ran the show, namely white Christian Protestants. It just doesn't it's never made sense to me. It will never make sense, but then again, um uh that's life. People often don't make sense, including me. Look at me, Luke, we became friends. Yeah. <laughs> and that's okay.
1: And what was the name of that group that you were, were running at the time, or what was it about? Well, I wasn't
2: running it; I was okay. helping, and I don't re- remember. They morphed off. In fact, I quit that. I quit that group. I have to go. I'll look and see. I, I don't remember right offhand, but it was it was it was an ad hoc group just to have these speakers at this event, and uh, uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, what was related to me. Is that tom wasn't going to have that event that that event was something else and i thought why would he do that and uh it, it just seemed bizarre and then even let me go a step further luke and i'll, I'll into there is even his the, the spiel that tom gave at that uh uh chabad uh uh was it a synagogue or was yes. it a community uh, center, uh, a community a center. Synagogue?
1: it was a community, community center. Center.
2: okay yeah yeah it, it, it was not even what tom sunik normally says
1: yeah, uh, Duvid, uh, When I was asking you to, to list off some some of your your realizations, uh, one of your realizations was how much Jews disliked each other. Uh, so the, the sectarianism of, of Jews. Do you do you want to uh, elaborate on that?
0: Yeah, I'm saying like people like me or, or Luke are a vast minority and uh there's a huge cultural divide and uh, varying group strategies and a lot of jews blame each other and you know they 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 see it as the other jews fault for why things are happening or, or a poor strategy and there's some charity there's some you know global jewish people uh, but generally there's a strong dislike uh you know, between American Jews and Israelis, Israelis and American Jews, Orthodox Jews and uh Reformed Jews, even modern Orthodox and uh in Karaidi. And it's because there's largely incompatible group strategies and it could be you know our Gentile associates, you know, people that our group strategy makes sense to and uh you know, if you think the dominant group strategies, the liberal group strategy, uh, that you know, relatively all of the group strategies of Jews right now are working out pretty good. You know, like, God forbid, there, you know, if you want to say there's catastrophe approaching, God forbid. Uh, but, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, relatively Israel, Haredim, modern Orthodox, secular reform um they might all have various problems but but basically uh, almost all jewish groups as a whole are doing pretty good and uh pretty successful uh but there's not that much uh, uh intersectionality and uh most of the jewish groups are pushing forward with you know our conflicting uh, strategies and have a strong dislike for other Jewish groups that are pushing uh, conflicting strategies.
1: Uh Rodney you served overseas i believe you're in some place like uh, Somalia how how did uh living serving overseas uh, affect your understanding of reality and affect your understanding of the United States.
2: Yugoslavia had a bigger impact uh on on as far as you know how i look at foreign policy and how i work Look at what's going to happen in the United States. And, you know, Luke, I I've said for, you know, I said on your show, oh, well, maybe since 2014, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see because of the policies that have taken place in the United States, uh, uh, particularly when you have 50 percent of the country that really doesn't care if there's an open border. You now have about 35 to 40 percent openly saying if the country was attacked, they wouldn't defend it uh so I, I i've always said that you know all the talk of a civil war that's not what's going to happen it's going to be a soviet style breakup and we see that with the states now beginning to do their own thing build their own border walls shipping illegals up into sanctuary cities which i don't understand why sanctuary cities are upset that's what a sanctuary city does it takes illegal people but the balkans taught me a lot you would seen situation where under Tito, Yugoslavia, which was very multiracial, multi-ethnic, you know, religious, ground, everything, you had situations where families were intermarried between Muslim uh, and, and and Christian, and for upwards of forty years uh, under Tito, and for a short period under his predecessors, they held it together, and it was all of, it was one. Tito it was because he was a, he was a strong man. He wasn't even Serbian, which was the predominant, uh, you know, the the Serbia ran for most, for all intent and purposes, the Yugoslav Federation. He was a Croatian, uh, but he was able to reach out and connect within all of the multi-ethnic groups uh, in uh, Yugoslavia. And he didn't, he always maintained everybody's equal under the law. Uh, There was, uh, you know, there there just wasn't any uh, uh, of the tribalism Uh, Until you know, a couple of things happened. One, uh, Tito dies. His predecessors are trying to hold this thing together. The West decides to go in there and uh, resource mine and tinker uh, with with things, and it stirred up tribalism. And it doesn't take very much to stir up tribalism uh, at all. All it senses, all it takes is for Two or three of the subgroups to perceive that the dominant group, in this case the Serbs, were, were somewhat weaker and not on sure footing, and all hell broke loose. And i seen things where you've seen families where literally husbands are shooting wives and wives are shooting husbands, brothers, you know, you have mixed families where one brother actually is a Christian, to the other brother was a Muslim, and they're wasting each other. Um, it, it is absolutely uh, uh, incredible. And that's why I've always, you know, the alt-right people that used to come on your show, Luke, I used to get pushback from them when I tell them not to be talking out their hind end about a civil war because they don't know what they're talking about. I've seen the effects of one. I can guarantee you an American civil war like that would uh, make the Yugoslav situation look like you know uh, Disneyland simply because of the nature of, of Americans and the nature of the powder keg that, the United States political system is is allowing to get, it's like a pressure cooker and there's no relief valve. And at some point, uh, uh, either you know the system, the powers that be, the elites, whatever you want to call them, is either going to release the pressure or they're going to have a, a problem. You have the president today or yesterday telling people, well, if you want to fight us, you're going to need F-16s. So and I was thinking, what? makes Biden think that the, if there was some sort of insurrection on a grander scale, that the other side wouldn't have F-16s and wouldn't have tanks and wouldn't have APCs, because that was certainly the case in Yugoslavia, because when that thing collapsed, people didn't care about the uniform of the Yugoslav federal army they were wearing. They took up, according to their tribe, they they raided uh, ammo dumps, they raided armories, and you had a situation with the exception of of, of the Muslims uh, in certain areas, uh, with those few exceptions, they were evenly matched because they all made a run on the resources and people that were in this multi-ethnic, multi-racial federal uh, military all took their weapons and went to their perfecti- you know, prospective tribes. So that had a greater impact. Somalia was just a low IQ shit show that the United States never should have been, we shouldn't still uh, be going there. This is a country that has an average IQ of sixty-five. They had one ATM machine in the entire country in the last fifteen years, and it got ripped off and stolen, drugged down the street behind a donkey. I rest my case on, on Somalia.
0: Uh,
1: David, do you find yourself thinking that uh, America might be headed for a civil war?
0: Well, I mean, uh, balkanization. I mean, Mead Rodney after uh, you know Brundle. That was one of Brundle's first dreams was with uh, norvin and rodney where we talked about uh the balkanization of america and i've been saying that really since uh the 90s like i said i was a troubled kid you know maybe maybe i had a high iq and uh i foresaw this really in the 90s i was already saying this i thought america was gonna split up like the former soviet union um but uh yeah i think it's finally coming uh you know coming to head and it's uh you know, like we're talking about with uh, Jewish sectarianism and incompatible group strategies that uh, you know, at a certain point the you know, our, our group strategies are just incompatible and uh, and we're likely to separate
1: and uh, David, where do you feel most and least comfortable in America? There are certain regions, cities, communities where you feel most comfortable, other places where you feel least comfortable
0: um i think i could function you know really anywhere i i you know these days i i you know covid-19 i hardly go anywhere um you know became rather isolated you know do e-commerce uh but you know i lived in new york city manhattan um university you know detroit majority african american places uh i think i could handle and and be successful in any of the surroundings, and you know, like I said, make myself useful, uh, do something uh, useful for society that I would be able to uh find some position. But you know, at this point, I'm, I'm pretty staked in that it's likely, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be going to stay here in uh, metro Detroit, and uh, you know, it's possible I'll return to New York City or uh, Israel. And I, you know, I so said, I think, uh, I think I could walk into many synagogues i knew thousands of people in new york i have a good memory i think if i ended up back in new york i would you know still till today know half half of the people in many synagogues and even in israel i haven't been in israel in over 20 years i think i would know a lot of people in uh in israel so but but uh you know i'm likely just to stick it out here in detroit
1: And uh, Rodney, are there parts of America where you feel most comfortable, other parts where you feel least comfortable?
2: Well, that's an interesting question because it wasn't something I'd ever pondered until 2017. I had, you know, packed up and moved my family all over, you know, since the late 80s and early 90s. So in my, my home was always wherever I'm at at any given time that that's, uh, that's home. Uh, But uh, of course, I was born in LA, and uh, then uh, family, my grandparents moved to Arizona. So I spent a lot of my time in Arizona, and uh, and then, of course, left uh, when I became of uh, became of age. But uh, and I have a child that is buried, and it wasn't until my child was buried in uh, in Arizona that uh, that's home. All of a sudden, that became home. That's where I'm more at ease. That's more I'm at peace. I go back there every month. I try to go back there every month. Uh, I go and uh, visit her grave. I visit her, you know, family, and that after that moment in time, now maybe that's just something that has to do with some grief that I haven't fully excised yet or dealt with. But until then, it was it was wherever I'm at. I I, there's areas of the country that I dearly love. I you you know uh, despite all of my uh, Criticism, there's a lot I like about LA, spend a lot of time there. Uh, there's a lot I like about the Pacific Northwest, I spend time there. And there's a lot I like about Northern uh, Nevada. Uh, but Arizona since 2017 has become home. That's where you're, I yearned to, to be and you know, and so best way I can answer the question, it, it wasn't a thing until 2017.
1: Okay, I think I'm going to wrap up the stream for tonight. So, uh, Rodney, any any final words for this evening?
2: Yeah, you know, I see, you know, I, I, I was looking on social media and people are uh, all up in arms. You know, I, I was really shocked to hear that Biden said that about, you better get an, F, uh, an F-15. That's completely irresponsible. I'm curious what's going to happen when he calls half the country neo-Nazis and fascists uh, uh, at his upcoming lifetime speech. I think that he's better, someone better talk to him uh, before then, because, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting. We have Biden giving a speech day after tomorrow where he's supposedly going to call everybody fascists or neo-Nazis or whatever. And then today we had Gorbachev pass away. And, you know, maybe Biden's going to have to look into history because you know Gorbachev could have very well kept the Soviet. It was never his idea to break up the Soviet Union. He wanted to reform it. He was trying to follow the steps that Andropov had, had started before he got too sick and died. And at one bleak moment, Gorbachev had to make a decision. Do I send in the Red Army and tanks on my own people or do I, uh, or do I let nature take its course? Uh, and he chose the latter and he's the better man for it. Because I can tell you, like I said, using Yugoslavia as an example, uh, that is something that a lot of Americans that talk big and a lot of alt-righters that talk big on the internet, uh, they will be nowhere to be found if something like that happens. So be careful. My words are, be careful what you ask for, you might get it. And that's my words to the alt-right and to the left.
1: And uh, David, any final words for this evening? Yes, yeah, so I just
0: got in uh, a whole bunch of teaching company courses, uh, 20 of them, just ordered uh You got how to play the violin, uh, learning German, understanding the periodic table, history and archaeology of the Bible, how we move, uh, you know, a whole bunch. So, you know, make yourself useful. You know, like politics, I'm not sure it's going to help the government if there's anything we're going to be able to do about uh, what might be coming. So, uh, you know, just try to, uh, you know, like exercise, keep in good health make myself useful, keep on acquiring good skills, um, solidify my connection. So, you know, nice talking, Luke. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed this because, you know, I'm going through, a, I don't know, like a midlife identity crisis, but, uh, you know, just a reassessment, trying to understand who I am, my relationship to, uh, you know, Judaism. And, you know, as watching uh, like Rodney, as uh, your society crumbles, God forbid. So I appreciate uh, the conversation.
1: Okay, guys, take care. Yes, Rodney.
2: Luke, real quick, Duvid needs to marry a librarian. We need to set him up. And two, he kind of described the survival mode that was described to me. Just be useful and see what happens. Have a good evening, Luke.
1: Take care, guys. Bye-bye.